0: remaining upstairs, I encourage you to go ahead and have your Bibles turned to Hebrews chapter 9. You know, isn't it a blessing I love every week when we see the children go down? And they go down, and they're excited uh, they're excited to be with one another. They're excited for the teachers uh, because our teachers really do love them. Um, and what's amazing is they really do grow in their knowledge of God's Word. And the teachers are all just bent on how do they help? How do they just help them understand the truths of the Bible? And so it a, it's a joy to see them head down each week uh, knowing that their faith is growing, knowing that there are, are adults down there who love them and are pouring into them. And so uh, now we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. You have no notes in your bulletin, so there's a couple things you can note when that happens. Either I was lazy and just chose not to give you notes. Um, It wasn't necessarily the case this week. Uh, If you are aware, I normally like to have a decent outline for you, usually with quite a few words in it, but uh, this week was hard. Um, Putting it together, wrestling with the text— um, it was um, Friday morning, Raymond's here, and he's like, you got something for me? I'm like, nope, just print. And so uh, there are times that that happens, and I, I know that God used this passage greatly just in me, just wrestling with it, um, and I pray that there is fruit of that now that we will share as we look into this passage. Uh, but if you're, if you're familiar, and you were with us last week, we, we preached Um, on the first part um, of Hebrews 9, and the title was Nothing But the Blood. We preached on the blood of Jesus. We sang about the blood of Jesus. In fact, one of the songs that we sang was Nothing But the Blood. And so I just want to read some of those lyrics, and I just want you to think about what we we sing about here as a church. This is what, I'm not going to sing them though, just You can sing it in your head, do whatever you want. I don't sing in front of people. Uh, Chris would do it. You'd probably just, you'd sing it in front, wouldn't you? He's got an amazing voice. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, Nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, not, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll overcome, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll reach my home, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Glory, glory, this I sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring, nothing but but the blood of Jesus. If you were here last week, we're we're singing, and this was before the sermon, we're singing uh, just songs again. Everything is about the blood of Jesus as we're in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 as we were singing last week. And Chris then stopped in between two songs and he paused and he said, if anyone was to listen to what we just sang about how we praised God for blood, It would seem absolutely ridiculous and ludicrous. When we talk about the blood of Jesus, we're talking about his death, that he died on the cross. And so when we come and we're singing about the blood of Jesus, we're not just talking about blood as just blood in and of itself, but we're referring to the fact that Jesus comes as our substitutionary and spotless sacrifice who died for our sins satisfying God's wrath. That's what we do. And last week, that's what we came and we just sang about God's blood, the fact that Jesus died on the cross so we could be forgiven. And today, we're just going to stick with that theme because that's what we're at. that's where we're at in Hebrews, and we're going to continue to look at the blood of Jesus. The word "blood" will be used seven times. The word "death" three times. Everything referring to how ultimately Christ is the one who died for us so that we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. So the title today is Signed in Blood, and here's the main point. This is this is what I want us to get. This is what I believe the text is trying to move us to understand. Jesus's death is the guarantee that we are heirs of all God's blessings. Okay, it's only through his death that we will receive his blessings, only through death. So that's what we're going to see. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, stand with me, and we're going to read verses 15 through 26. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since... A death has occurred that redeems him from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force for as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's pray. Our Father, our only hope is in the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that will justify us apart from the blood of Jesus. We have no hope. We have no comfort. We have no joy. We have no inheritance except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I believe your word is given to us today that we would see that we will only experience your blessings through the death of your son, Jesus. Death is the means of our inheritance. And so, Lord, I pray that we see it. I pray that we see the grace of I pray that we see how, Lord, you and your great sovereignty have provided everything that we need in order to be saved, that we would boast in your name and not in your name and not in our name. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we, as we study this text, as we look deeply into it, that, Lord, our hearts would be made well, that truly our souls would be made well, and as restless as they may be, and whatever anxiety and whatever things we are going through, that here we would see that you have provided everything we need to be forgiven, to be justified, to be adopted, to be sanctified, to be glorified, to share an eternal inheritance with you, to be citizens in your kingdom for all of eternity. Lord, I pray May our hearts be at rest, may our souls be at rest, as we behold all that you have done for us in your Son. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. We're going to dig in here. So, we're going to start at verse 16. There's many reasons for that, but um, I'll just tell you, that's where we're going to start. Then we're going to come back at the end, towards verse 15. The first truth, like, so this is where we're going to start is that death is the means in which sinful humanity experiences the blessings of God. That's what we're going to see. Death is the means in which sinful humanity experiences the blessings of God. So the author is going to prove this in two ways. Number one, he's going to give us a practical example. Number two, he's going to give us a historical example by looking at the Old Covenant. And then... After that, he's going to show how everything is ultimately fulfilled through the death of Jesus. So, practical example, historical example, all leading to the ultimate example of Jesus Christ. So, to start with the practical example, which is meant to prove death is the means in which we experience blessings. Okay, that's, that's his initial point. If you look at verse 16, he says, For a will is involved... For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. In other words, a will involves death. And then verse 17, the author says, For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So this isn't rocket science. This is is very basic where he's starting us. His point is the will only comes into effect when the one who made it Will die. So if you, um, many of you might have wills, if you're a parent, you, you, may, you may have a will, and then you are giving certain assets that you have possibly to your children, and they will receive those upon your death, not before, right? So that is what the will states, and at, at your death, that will will be read, and they will receive the blessings that you have given them through your death. Does that make sense? Death is the means in which we experience the blessing of the will. So that's the practical example. That's just hitting it at a very ground level. And now he's going to switch gears slightly and say, now that we understand that principle, let's look at more of a historical example and look at the Old Covenant. So starting in verse 18, we read the word, therefore. The author is now going to apply the illustration that he just has to the Old Covenant. In verse 18, we read, The Old Covenant was inaugurated by blood. And then verses 19 through 22 show that everything was sprinkled with the blood when the Old Covenant was established. In fact, you'll read, it talks about the people being uh, sprinkled, the book being sprinkled, the tabernacle being sprinkled, all of these things being sprinkled with blood. And we actually read about this all the way back in Exodus 24 when the covenant was being made. And so I just want to read that so you can just see where the author is getting this from in Exodus 24. So in Exodus 24, starting in verse 3, we read this Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the law. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So everything is sprinkled with blood. And if you're familiar with the old covenant, then you know that it not only was established with blood, but it was characterized by blood everywhere in fact if you read Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 some of our favorite chapters right right you're like "Eh, maybe Um, uh, chapters 1 through 7 is sacrifice 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 and it's basically just a repetition of sacrifices and just slightly different you have the guilt offering the sin offering the burnt offering and just but everything is with blood Be a priest in the Old Testament was extremely bloody. Their garments would be stained and dripping with blood every single day. The ground outside the tabernacle would have puddles of blood everywhere. Now, let me ask you. Have you ever dreamed about your work? You know what I mean? Like you go to bed and you dream about work. And when you wake up, totally not rested right like it's like you just put in eight hours and then you wake up and you're just worn out just to go actually to go to work well I I just want you to think if you were a priest in the Old Testament what would you dream about the death of lambs the death of goats the death of bulls blood 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 everywhere. Now you can say, well, why? I mean, this is kind of gross and disgusting. Why is this people of God so consumed with blood? Well, look at verse 22. Under the law, almost everything was purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what we see is blood purifies, And in parallel there, so to explain, purify, and brings forgiveness. Through the blood, we experience forgiveness. And the reason the text says almost everything is purified by blood is because the law, actually, it was so gracious. God made provision for those who were too poor to have a lamb or a goat. And they might bring a grain offering. But for the most part, everything was was cleansed, through the shedding of blood. So what do we need to know? What do we need to understand here? Well, one, blood, death, is the means in which we obtain forgiveness of sins. But why? What Israel's learning in the Old Testament is that the penalty of sin is death. And they know that so well. Because every day, animals are sacrificed on their behalf. Every day, rather than them dying for the sins, animals stand in their place and are dying for their sins so they could experience forgiveness. Romans 6.23 in the New Testament says, the wages of sin is death. So the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a temporary means that God gave Israel so they could experience his blessings. We have a sinful people. How is it that a sinful people will experience God's blessings, His provision, His presence, His protection? How will that happen? They're sinful. Through the blood, through the death of these animal sacrifices, in their place. Now, you might say that that um, now you might say, why would God require death? Is that crazy? Is that too extreme? Is that fair? Is this, like right here, like this idea that God requires blood, death, in order to receive his blessings, is that why some people think that the God of the Bible is angry and wrathful, and they want nothing to do with him? It's here that I think we have to pause, and we need to remember if we have a wrong view of God, then we will not understand the gravity and the weight of our sin. And if we don't understand the gravity and weight of our sin, then we will not see why we need the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So if we, if we misunderstand who God is, we misunderstand sin, and we will misunderstand why we need Jesus or even if we need Jesus. This is why when we read our Bibles, we must ask the question, what does this text tell me about God? We have to ask that question too often. What's the question that we ask? What does this mean to me? Why is this applicable? Why should I know this? What am I supposed to do? And, and the reason so often we walk away sometimes going like, I don't know if I got anything out of the text today. You ever feel like that? It's okay. You know, you guys were a little shy with Sumyong and he was sharing, but we don't have to be shy. So have you ever felt like that? Like like you read and you're like, I read Leviticus 1 through 7. It's a lot of blood, a lot of sacrifice. What do I do with that? <clears throat> We're starting in the wrong place. So anytime you're walking away from the Bible going, I don't think that was very helpful for me today. You started off wrong because you're starting off with a me-centric theology going, well, I need to know right now how this is good for me. When what we should be doing is, what does this tell me about God first? Because only if I understand what this tells me about God will I then understand why this was ever written and given and why it is needed for me to know, understand, and apply today. Does that make sense? If we start with me, we're going to miss it, especially when we're in some of these texts in the Old Testament because we're just going to be like this. This is crazy stuff. But what does it tell us about God? Then we're going to be able to make proper understanding of what it means for us today. So what's the question that we have to ask every single time we read a text? What is it? What does this text tell me about Good. You know, you're doing better. We'll get there. I think we have some more interaction coming. Um, So if that's what we need to do, then that's what we're going to do now. Because we're in a text that's telling us, man, we need death in order to experience His blessings. And that, frankly, sounds weird and strange. So why? Why does sin require death? Why is forgiveness so costly? Well, when we understand that our God is great and supreme and holy and mighty and infinite, then we understand how great our offense is against him. So I just want to read through just a few texts. Some I'll quote, some I'll just refer to. Um, just to remind ourselves of who this God is that we come and worship every, every day. So in Genesis 1, we see that God's infinite power is on display. As the text says, he speaks creation into existence, exalting the very power, authority, and supremacy of God. In the book of Exodus, God's presence, his might, his holiness is displayed all throughout the book. We see God's power is displayed in the 10 plagues that crush Egypt. We're told in Exodus 15, in this song, that with the blast of his nostrils, the Red Sea is parted. Do you remember that? Do you love that imagery? That's how big and strong and powerful it is. He blasts his nostrils. It's kind of weird. But like with that, the Red Sea is parted. It's dry. Israel goes through on dry ground. Egypt gets destroyed. When Israel gathers a Mount Sinai, God descended upon the mountain like fire. His His holiness was so great that the mountain trembled in his presence. So I just ask you, what trembles at your presence? Like what? Maybe your dog? Like, you know, like you walk in and they did something wrong, tail goes between the legs and they like go hide. Maybe the cats don't. (laughs) We're not even gonna go there. Um, We are told the sky was filled with darkness and lightning. Shoots forth. In Isaiah 40, we're told that God sits above all of the earth on his throne. The span of his hand stretches across the universe. That's big. We're told that the nations are like a drop in a bucket before him, and in his hand, he can hold all the waters of the world. You can't even hold eight ounces. All the waters in his hand. And Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision of God sitting on his throne. And we're told his train, the train of his throne, of his robe, is so great. It fills the entire temple. That's a picture of his majesty, of his might, of his authority, of who this God is. He doesn't just have a train that goes 10 or 20 feet. It Fills the entire temple. And then there's angels who are specifically created to continually fly around him and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what they do all day long. And they have these six wings, two wings in which they fly, two wings in which cover their feet, and two wings which cover because they themselves are not even holy enough to behold God without their wings in front of them. And this is similar to what we read in Revelation 4, where we are told that God sits on his throne, And there are these four living creatures who shout and never cease to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. And then we're told there's 24 elders around His throne who fall down and cry out worthy are you O Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. He is the source of Of all life and the sustainer of all life. In the book of Daniel, Daniel's given this vision of God in Daniel chapter 7. And this is of the Father on his throne. And he says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousands, stood before him. All picturing his greatness, his majesty, his holiness, his supremacy over every other power. One more. Have you read Nahum lately? Have you? Is that not on the Bible reading plan? All right, go read Nahum. You're like, Nahum, that's a book. Old Testament prophet, amazing book. And just read, as you read chapter one, just again, what's the question we ask? What does this text tell me about? See, like you guys, Sum Young should be up here now. He needs to see this. Okay, listen, this is what it says. So this is a picture of God coming in judgment. So it's a picture of the last days. It's a picture when Jesus will return and he wants us to know what's going to happen. How is it that creation will respond to this God? So it says, the mountains quake before him. We already saw that, Mount Sinai, mountains tremble. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand Before his indignation. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And rocks are broken into pieces by him. Like, think of a candle. And you you light the candle. And then what happens? It melts, right? That's literally what he says. The hills will melt. Melt like wax before him. Because his heat his glory is so great that creation itself cannot resist Him. This is our God. This is the God that the Bible presents to us from Genesis to Revelation. He's holy. He's great. He's mighty. He's creator. He's sustainer. The hills melt like wax. His throne is fire. There's no impurity that comes before Him. This is the God of the Bible. He's not one of many gods. He's not a God. He's the God, the one true God who made all things perfect in every way, infinite in knowledge, power, and might. He's perfect. He's unchanging. Source and sustainer of all life. He fills the entire world and galaxy and universe with his presence. Fills it. He's that big. He just is Everywhere. There's not one inch, one inch in all creation where he's not present. His rule has no limits. Nothing thwarts his purposes. His glory and holiness is greater and brighter than 10,000 times 10,000 suns. This is our God. So when we go, this is our God, that's when we begin to understand how offensive. Our sin is against Him. Because it's saying it's this God that we've rebelled against. It's this God that we've failed to worship and honor. We've thought we could live in rebellion to Him without consequences. Or perhaps, like Psalm 4, 14, 1, we've thought that we can deny His existence altogether. And so what's the penalty? It's death. For our sin, we deserve death. Consequences are always based upon the authority of the one offended. Get that? So, if we have the ultimate, highest, greatest authority, and that's who we offended, why is the penalty so great? So, you see, death is not severe, but rather it's quite appropriate when we acknowledge who the God is that we have offended. Death is only too severe for gods that we make in our own image. Do you understand that? That's why we recoil. Because the gods that we make wouldn't require that. But we need to remind ourselves that we didn't make this God. He's not made in our image, but we are made in His image. And when we think that God is like us, we will trivialize sin and we will think that sin is not so offensive. And we have example after example of that in the Bible. Think of Luke 18. We're told that a man, this is actually a story of two men, we'll just focus on one. A man goes up to the temple to worship God. He stands off by himself and he begins to pray. And this is is how he prays. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he turns to another guy who's right there, a tax collector, and he he probably points and he says, or like that guy, the tax collector. And then he proceeds to list his righteous deeds before God as if he is to be impressed. Now, if you're like a track track star, track athlete, imagine boasting in front of Usain Bolt how fast you are. I'm really fast. I was first in high school and he's like, I was first in Olympics. Like our boasting is like nothing compared to him and as much as that fails to compare, just think, how much does our boasting fail before God? So we have a religious man who ignores his sin and boasts of his righteousness in a place of worship. Do you get that? a religious man in a place of his worship in the place of worship boasting in his righteousness can that hit close to home like just think of that have you ever done that have you ever gathered with the church and you thought of yourself better than others as if The bar of righteousness in the church was you. And everyone would be better off if they were more like you and acted like you and thought like you and spoke like you. Is God lucky to have you on his team? Like, do you make team God stronger? Like, really? Like when we read all these things about God and then we're like, he's happy to have me because I'll do what he can't. I'll fill in. He'll put like most of the pieces of the puzzle together, but don't worry. I'll do the ones he can't. When we trivialize God, when we don't think properly, we trivialize sin and we're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. Um, This last week, youth group, yeah, you made a sermon illustration. Chris is teaching. And we're, we're teaching on the Sermon on the Mount right now. And, and Chris is teaching on murder. And, and so this, this, is what, this is what he reads. You have heard that it was not said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, murdering people, bad if you murder someone, the death, the judgment is death. But I say to you, this is Jesus, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Have you been angry lately? Like God, God doesn't just look at the externals. He looks at our hearts. He hears our grumbling. He knows our anger. He knows our every lustful thoughts. So I just want to ask you, have you trivialized sin? I just want you to think of that at this moment. Is there anything you need to confess? And, and like a good way, if, if there's anything just pressing in your mind right now, know that that's the Spirit. That's not breakfast. You're just kind of turning, and maybe that's what that... No, it's the Spirit. He's pressing and saying, you actually need to confess and repent that right now. So I just want to encourage you to do that. Especially before we take up the elements. Now, maybe you're here today, and you've actually never believed in God, and you're finally beginning, this is why we believe what we do about God, because of what the Word says about Him. He is that great. He is that holy. And this is who I've offended, and I thought I could go through life, and there wasn't really that big of consequences. And so maybe you're aware today that you have trivialized sin your entire life. Well, for that, if that's you, I want to encourage you to repent and confess also your sins and believe in him today and experience his forgiveness. Experience the blood that washes over you and cleanses you and purifies you. So, all of that. So, now we come back to our text and we say, okay, now we know why we deserve death. This is why the whole old covenant was so bloody because he wanted to know we're sinful and sin is costly. And the only way we can experience the blessing of God is through death. So what does God do? Now we go to verse 15. I couldn't start with verse 15. I couldn't write a sermon because I didn't know how to start with verse 15. It was like just ramming my head into a wall the entire time. So I just said, well, we'll just skip verse 15. We'll come back to it later. So that's that's the way this is working because I didn't know how to talk through it. But here's the point. The practical example told us that blessings come through death. The historical example then builds on that. The blessings of God come through death. But we know that the historical example of the Old Covenant was temporary. It was never ultimate. It was a symbol. It was copies. It was shadows. All pointing to a much greater sacrifice, which is Jesus. So Jesus is the true and ultimate death that graciously gives us all the blessings of God. That's verse 15. He's like, this is the point of this passage. It's only through Jesus and his death that we will experience God's blessings. Look at verse 15. It's the word therefore. When the word therefore is there, what do we ask? What is the word therefore, therefore? You can remember that one. I know, I have confidence in you. Verses 11 through 14. If you forgot them, here's the summary. They're all about the death of Jesus. Bigger summary, you can go back and look at the sermon last week. So everything is about the death of Jesus. On the basis of Jesus' death, Jesus has now become our mediator, okay? Mediators are often those who stand in between two angry parties. These parties have wronged each other, so the mediator comes, is going to find common ground, point out mistakes and sins, so that these parties can be reconciled, right? mediator not rocket science. But we don't have two parties that are equal and sinful, do we? We have God who is perfect and righteous, who has done no wrong. And then over here, we have sinful man. So Jesus comes as the bridge, as the mediator, as the one who makes it possible for sinful man now to come into the presence of God. God doesn't lower the standard of, God doesn't wipe sin under the rug. If he did so, he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't be just, and we surely would not want to spend an eternity in a kingdom where justice was not upheld, right? That would be hell. So we have Jesus coming as the mediator in between these two parties, holy and perfect, has done no wrong, and then humanity. So Jesus comes, and because we've all sinned, he now dies in our place, as our substitute, that's all last week, so that we could then experience the blessings of God, which we'll look at in just a moment. There was a a debate about using this illustration, but we'll we'll just go for it. So, I I listened to the Christian radio, and I want to like the Christian radio. Um, And so... Uh, the person, I don't know who it is. I don't know what station it was. But they go, do you want to know how much God loves you? I'm like, I'm like deep in this text. Like all I think about is this text all week and how I have no idea how to talk through it. So I'm like, yes, give me something. So then the, the radio person, whatever they're called, they said, if God had a phone... Your picture would be in it. That's how much God loves you. So I just said, that's stupid. <laughs> it's literally the stupidest thing. I My wife's going to talk to me later about using the word stupid up here, like she will. That is... For any Christian to think that that is going, like, beyond the theological issues, if God had a phone, like, that is the most ridiculous, stupid thing. Uh-huh. Like, I was like yelling in my car, like, on the way here. It's like that. It's stupid. That's not how we speak, as Christians. You want to know? how God loves you, let's speak biblically about that. It's got some good stuff. First John 4, 9, and 10. In this, the love of God was manifest. So John's literally saying, you want to know God's love? This is how he revealed it. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be a wrath-absorbing propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. That's love. If you want to know if Jesus loves you, look to the cross. Don't look at your phone or someone else's phone. That's just stupid. There's no greater act, there's no greater demonstration than the God of glory Sending his son to die in your place. Who we are completely and absolutely unworthy. So that we could then be saved. And notice what happens. We receive the promised eternal inheritance. God gives us everything. Holds nothing back. Do you get that? It holds nothing back. He sends his son To die in your place. So so to put this back in like context, God has a will. To use the example in verses 16 and 17. And he states that his children will receive all that he has upon his death. Okay? There's a problem though. God can't die. He's eternal. And that's why Jesus took on flesh. So he would come and he would stand in your place as a substitutionary, spotless sacrifice, satisfying the wrath of God so we could become children of God and our names would be in the book of life and we would receive everything that God has. And what is that? A whole other sermon could be spent. Chapter 10, verse 16 and 18 says this, I will put my law on their hearts, I will write it on their minds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Absolute, total forgiveness. If you believed in Jesus, that's true of you now. Do you get that now? You're forgiven today. If you're here, you've never believed in Jesus, you believe in Jesus today, you're fully, absolutely forgiven now, today in Christ. But there's more. There's so much more that we could talk about when we look at the inheritance. Chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe. You've been given a kingdom. An everlasting kingdom in which God dwells, reigns supreme, is characterized by righteousness, peace, everlasting joy, and you are guaranteed to live in that kingdom for all of eternity. All the other kingdoms of the world will crumble, will fall, will melt before Jesus when he returns. But for all who know him, we will be made like Him. Jesus, 1 John 3, 2, will be made like him because we will see him as he is and we will live with him for eternity. Never to sin again. We are freed from the power of sin now, but then we'll be freed from the presence of sin forever. Never to sin again. Never to be angry. Never to be lustful. Never to be impatient. Never to stumble in any way at the inheritance that we have, that's what we proclaim. That's what we proclaim. That's the good news. Everyone in the world is on a path to death just like you and I. And the only way they come into the presence of the one who knows or in the presence of God is when we share the gospel. Because God uses the church as his chosen means to speak the gospel that he would then save and we would have everlasting hope and forgiveness and inheritance in him. Now real quick, and I skipped a few parts, but that's okay. What do you do if later someone questions and asks, how do I know if my name is really on the will. How do I know? How do I know I'm forgiven? How do I know that all of my sins, all of these things, this weight, this burden, has actually been taken care of? How How do I know? Look at verse 26. Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That word put away means he's removed your sin, he's removed your guilt, and he signed it in blood. The will of God is signed in the blood of Jesus, and your name is signed in the book of life by the blood of Jesus. So that we would know through the death of Jesus, we become heirs of all that God has. Not by works, but by grace. In verse 25, 20, no, 20-something, 20, 20 it's like there, I'm like staring at it, and I can't see it, um, th- 23, Jesus is the better sacrifice, you see that? He's the better sacrifice, I pray you've trusted in Jesus, I pray you believed in Jesus, I pray you know why there's forgiveness for you. How you experience the blessings of God is only through the death of Jesus because it's always been by death. Let's pray. Father, Father, we just praise you. You have given us everything. You have made us heirs with your son Jesus, by the gracious death of your son, so that we could be forgiven, our sins covered and put away and dealt with, so we will forever live with you. And while we come in empty-handed, having nothing, you give us everything. And Lord, I pray we know that, I pray I pray if there is anyone here who just wrestles with the burden of their sin and they feel like it just weighs down upon them, they would know that the only hope of having that burden removed, of that sin taken, of that debt being canceled is through the death of your son. I pray they know that. And Lord, as your people, I pray we don't trivialize sin. May we remember the great cost of that was given so we could be saved. It's all by the Son, your son, Jesus. As we come into communion now, may it just be a time of praise, a time of reflection, a time in which we worship you. And Lord, if we need to, may we confess. In your name, Jesus, amen.